imagine you live in California, and it's a brisk day in December. It's not quite Christmas, but to your surprise, you've received a package in the mail. It's a manila envelope, sealed with some official-looking tape. It bears no return address, but it's postmarked Albuquerque, New Mexico. Intrigued, you begin to open the package, only to find another envelope, also taped. Ripping open that envelope, you once again find another envelope, just like a Russian nesting doll. Finally, you get to the prize and find out it's a black canister with a roll of undeveloped 35mm film. Of course, you get it developed, and you find out it's a top-secret government document given to the president. It's a briefing on a secret government organization and extraterrestrial technology. If this sounds like the next awesome plot for National Treasure 3, starring Nicolas Cage, it's not. This actually happened. You're listening to Conspiracy, Season 1, JFK. What will you believe? Last time on Conspiracy, we talked about the battle over Los Angeles. The U.S. Army and Navy get into a firefight off the coast of Los Angeles with an invisible enemy. World War II ends and the U.S. moves to secure German scientists and technology. In 1947, the U.S. woke up to news that the Army had recovered a crashing flying disc. Then, they changed their tune and claim it was only a weather balloon. We talked about John F. Kennedy and how he was associated with each of those events. These are the foundation for all the events that follow, and if they are the foundation, this episode is the bridge leading to JFK's presidency. When I analyze this time period, I can't help but think about how turbulent and overwhelming it must have been. Between 1914 and 1945, there had been two world wars, millions of lives lost, and the hope that a threat like Hitler would never rise up again. After World War II, the U.S. and Soviet Union began their Cold War, and with the advent of nuclear weapons, the world would forever be a moment and a decision away from utter devastation. On top of all that, let's consider for a second that all the information on UFOs and extraterrestrial activity are true and accurate. It makes absolute sense that the National Security Act of 1947 would be signed by President Truman. Can you imagine the turmoil the world would go through if the people found out aliens exist and they have been and currently are visiting the Earth? I'll take it even further. Can you imagine if the world found out aliens existed and also knew fanatical leaders like Hitler had recovered extraterrestrial technology and were actively reverse-engineering that technology? It sure would be prudent for the president to create a national intelligence umbrella plus a secret covert organization to manage and monitor the alien situation. This may be exactly what President Truman did. In 1984, Jamie Shander received that mysterious package and the undeveloped roll of 35mm film. He developed the film and finds out it's photographs of an alleged top-secret document 
put together by an organization called the Majestic 12 as a brief for the president-elect Eisenhower. Shandera would recruit Stanton Friedman to help him verify the documents, and his work led to Friedman publishing his findings in the book titled Top Secret Magic. You can find a copy of the documents sent to Shandera and over 1,300 more, yes, over 1,300 more, pages of documents relating to the Majestic 12 at auroraborosinc.com. That's O-U-R-O-B-O-R-O-S-I-N-K.com. To get to the meat and bones of this episode, I want to read the Eisenhower Briefing document in full. This way you'll have a full understanding of why this document is so shocking and controversial. The top of the document reads top secret slash magic, eyes only. Subject, Operation Majestic 12 Preliminary Briefing for President-Elect Eisenhower. Document prepared 18 November 1952. Briefing Officer, Admiral Roscoe H. Hillencoder, MJ-1. Operation Majestic 12 is a top-secret research and development intelligence operation responsible directly and only to the President of the United States. Operations of the project are carried out under control of the Majestic 12, which was established by Special Classified Executive Order of President Truman on 24 September 1947, upon recommendation by Dr. Vannevar Bush and Secretary James Forrestal. Members of the Majestic 12 group were designated as follows. Admiral Roscoe H. Hillencoder, Dr. Vannevar Bush, Secretary James Forrestal, General Nathan Twining, General Hoyt Vandenberg, Dr. Detlev Bronk, Dr. Jerome Huntsaker, Mr. Sidney Sowers, Mr. Gordon Gray, Dr. Donald Menzel, General Robert Montauk, Dr. Lloyd Berkner. At the bottom of this first page, there's a note It talks about Secretary Forrestal. This is what it says. The death of Secretary Forrestal on the 22nd May 1949 created a vacancy which remained unfilled until 01 August 1950, upon which date General Walter Smith was designated as a permanent replacement. The document continues as follows. On 24 June 1947, a civilian pilot flying over the Cascade Mountains in the state of Washington observed nine flying disc-shaped aircraft traveling in formation at a high rate of speed. Although this was not the first known sighting of such objects, it was the first to gain widespread attention in the public media. Hundreds of reports of sightings of similar objects followed. Many of these came from highly credible military and civilian sources. These reports resulted in independent efforts by several different elements of the military to ascertain the nature and purpose of these objects in the interests of national defense. A number of witnesses were interviewed, and there were several unsuccessful attempts to utilize aircraft in efforts to pursue reported disks in flight. 
public reaction bordered on near hysteria at times. In spite of these efforts, little of substance was learned about the objects until a local rancher reported that one had crashed in a remote region of New Mexico, located approximately 75 miles northwest of Roswell Army Air Base. On 07 July 1947, a secret operation was begun to assure recovery of a wreckage of this object for scientific study. During the course of this operation, several reconnaissance discovered that four small human-like beings had apparently ejected from the craft at some point before it exploded. These had fallen to earth about two miles east of the wreckage site. All four were dead and badly decomposed due to action by predators and exposure to the elements during the approximately one-week time period which had elapsed before their discovery. A special scientific team took charge of removing these bodies for study. The wreckage of the craft was also removed to several different locations. Civilian and military witnesses in the area were debriefed and news reporters were given the effective cover story that the object had been a misguided weather research balloon. A covert analytical effort organized by General Twining and Dr. Bush acting on the direct orders of the president resulted in a preliminary consensus that the disc was most likely a short-range reconnaissance craft. This conclusion was based for the most part on the craft's size and the apparent lack of any identifiable provisioning. A similar analysis of the four dead occupants was arranged by Dr. Brock. It was the tentative conclusion of this group that although these creatures were human-like in appearance, the biological and evolutionary processes responsible for their development has apparently been quite different from those observed or postulated in Homo sapiens. Dr. Bronk's team has suggested the term extraterrestrial biological entities, or EBEs, be adopted as the standard term of reference for these creatures until such a time is a more definitive designation can be agreed upon. Since it is virtually certain that these craft do not originate in any country on Earth, considerable speculation has centered around what their point of origin might be and how they got here. Mars was and remains a possibility, although some scientists, most notably Dr. Menzel, consider it more likely that we are dealing with beings from another solar system entirely. Numerous examples of what appeared to be a form of writing were found in the wreckage. Efforts to decipher these have remained largely unsuccessful. Equally unsuccessful have been efforts to determine the method of propulsion or the nature or method of transmission of the power source involved. Research along these lines has been complicated by the complete absence of identifiable wings, propellers, jets, or other conventional methods of propulsion and guidance as well as a total lack of metallic wiring, vacuum tubes, or similar recognizable electronic components. It is assumed that the propulsion unit was completely destroyed by the explosion which caused the crash. A need for as much additional information as possible about these craft, their performance, characteristics, and their purpose led to the undertaking known as U.S. Army Force Project SIGN in December 1947. In order to preserve security, liaison between SIGN and Majestic 12 was limited to two individuals within the Intelligence Division of Air Marshal Command, whose role was to pass along certain types of information through channels. 
Sign evolved into Project Grudge in December 1948. The operation is currently being conducted under the codename Blue Book, with liaison maintained through the Air Force officer who is head of the project. On 06 December 1950, a second object, probably of similar origin, impacted the Earth at high speed in the El Indio area of Texas after following a long trajectory through the atmosphere. By the time a search team arrived, what remained of the object had been almost totally incinerated. Such material as could be recovered was transported to the AEC facility at Sandia, New Mexico for study. Implications for the national security are of continuing importance and that the motives and ultimate intentions of these visitors remain completely unknown. In addition, a significant upsurge in the surveillance activity of these craft, beginning in May and continuing through the autumn of this year, has caused considerable concern that new developments may be imminent. It is for these reasons, as well as the obvious international and technological considerations, and the ultimate need to avoid a public panic at all costs, that the Majestic 12 group remains of the unanimous opinion that imposition of the strictest security precautions should continue without interruption into the new administration. At the same time, Contingency Plan MJ-1949-04P-78 should be held in continued readiness should the need to make a public announcement present itself. The key date in the release documents is 24 September 1947, a mere few days after the National Security Act was signed. The final page in the Eisenhower briefing was a copy of the memo signed by President Truman and written to the now Secretary of Defense James Forrestal. This is what it says. Dear Secretary Forrestal, As per our recent conversation on this matter, you are hereby authorized to proceed with all due speed and caution upon your undertaking. Hereafter, this matter shall be referred to only as Operation Majestic 12. It continues to be my feeling that any future considerations relative to the ultimate disposition of this matter should rest solely with the office of the President, following appropriate discussions with yourself, Dr. Bush, and the Director of Central Intelligence. Signed, Harry Truman. When Stanton Friedman was doing research into the validity of the documents, he was able to verify that between May and December 1947, Truman had only met with Vannevar Bush, one of the alleged 12 members of Majestic, once, on September 24th. The only other person at that meeting? James Forrestal. Another interesting fact is that the Eisenhower briefing was released three months after Dr. Jerome Huntsaker, the last surviving member, had died. Could this mean there was a prior agreement to release this information to the public at a certain time? Continuing the effort to corroborate the existence of Majestic 12, Stanton Friedman went to the National Archives. What he found there would be a document issued on July 14, 1954, called the Cutler-Twining Memo. If you remember, General Twining, a member of MJ-12, played an important role in the Roswell incident. He was sent to Alamogordo and White Sands to review and report on the recovered UFO wreckage. Robert Cutler was a special assistant to President Eisenhower. This is what the memo says, quote, The President has decided that the MJ-12 SSP briefing 
should take place during the already scheduled White House meeting of July 16th, rather than following it as previously intended, end quote. The Majestic 12 would begin to lock down information on all things extraterrestrial and would take efforts to keep what they knew secret. Two years after Majestic's creation, the country and the intelligence community would suffer a devastating blow. On May 22, 1949, James Forrestal would die under mysterious circumstances. Truman fired Forrestal two months earlier, and he was admitted into the Bethesda Naval Hospital for an alleged mental health reason. The official record claims that he committed suicide by jumping out his room window. But researcher Dave Martin wrote a letter to former Virginia Governor Gerald Belisles regarding his research into Forrestal's death, and this is what he said. Quote, Forrestal resigned because he was asked to resign by President Truman. He had not suffered a nervous breakdown. None of the doctors who treated him at Bethesda Naval Hospital described his condition as a nervous breakdown. What is more important, though, recently uncovered evidence greatly undermines the theory that Forrestal voluntarily jumped out of the window. Even without the recent evidence, the last official word from the government on Forrestal's death the conclusion of the review board convened by Admiral Morton Wilcutts, released more than four months after the death, was simply that Forrestal had died from his fall, without speculating about what had caused his fall. The report did not conclude, in other words, that he had committed suicide. It certainly didn't say, as you do, that he simply jumped out of the window, because an explanation would have to have been given for the bathrobe belt that was tied tightly around his neck. End quote. Over time, the evidence has actually shown that Forrestal was forced to resign over some policy dispute, and that the hospitalization was an attempt to silence him. But silence him over what? Another researcher, Richard Dolan, makes this claim, quote, Throughout Forrestal's hospitalization, access to him was severely restricted. One-time visitors were his wife, his two sons, Sidney Sowers, Lewis Johnson, Truman, and Congressman Lyndon Johnson. Although Forrestal was presumably glad to see his sons, he was not close to any of these visitors, and had a political antipathy to the government colleagues who came by. However, Forrestal was not permitted to see the several people he continually asked to see, his brother, a friend, and two priests. End quote. Henry Forrestal, James Forrestal's brother, threatened to go to the press and sue, his threats eventually led to him being allowed to visit his brother four times. One of the visitors that did manage to get access to Forrestal was Lyndon B. Johnson, a congressman at the time. But according to Forrestal's aide, Marks Leva, Congressman Johnson managed to gain entrance to the suite against Forrestal's wishes. This gives me the impression that someone or some group were trying to silence Forrestal. According to various sources, including his brother, Forrestal was murdered. Quote, At his home in Beacon, New York, Henry Forrestal stated that James Forrestal positively did not kill himself. He said his brother was the last person in the world who would have committed suicide, and that he had no reason for taking his life. When Forrestal talked to his brother at the hospital, James was having a good time planning the things he would do following his discharge. Henry Forrestal recalled that Truman and Johnson agreed that his brother was in fine shape and that the hospital officials admitted that he would have been released soon. To Henry Forrestal, the whole affair smelled to high heaven. He remarked about his brother's treatment at the hospital. 
his virtual imprisonment, and the censorship of his visitors. Henry Forrestal had never heard of such treatment and questioned why it should have been allowed. He further questioned why the hospital officials lied about his brother being permitted all the visitors he wanted. He considered it odd that his brother had died just a few hours before he, Henry, was to arrive and take James out of the hospital. Then he repeated his belief that James Forrestal did not kill himself, that he was murdered, that someone strangled him, and threw him out the window. What did Forrestal know? As a member of Majestic 12, could he have possibly wanted to go public with the existence of alien life? We may get a glimpse into this question later during the presidency of Kennedy, a topic I will cover later. Until then, think about this. Do you think the Majestic 12 and those in the highest levels of government would kill one of their own to keep him silent? Dwight Eisenhower won the 1952 presidential election. Republicans hadn't been in the White House since 1932. The last two decades of big government was about to end. And so President Eisenhower was set on restructuring the U.S. government, and this decision would have strong repercussions. He wanted to conduct a strategic study of the country's resources and capabilities. The existence of exotic technologies and potential visitors from other worlds created the need for a national security program that could rely on total secrecy. To do this, Eisenhower appointed Nelson Rockefeller and established by executive order the Advisory Committee on Government Organization on January 24, 1953. The goal was to reorganize the federal government with Rockefeller chairing the committee. He would directly report to the president. One of the recommendations that Rockefeller gave the president was a way to restructure the national security organization's so that black budget projects could be put to the best use. You see, the National Security Act of 1947, which established the creation of the CIA, National Security Council, Joint Chief of Staff, and the National Military Establishment, created a mechanism in which money could be funneled for highly classified military or defense projects that can be publicly unacknowledged by the government, military personnel, and contractors. The official term for one of these projects is called a Special Access Program, or SAP, and, believe it or not, they are outside of congressional oversight. In an article published by the Washington Post in 2013, and with information leaked by Edward Snowden, it was shown that about $53 billion were allocated to black budget projects. To no one's surprise, these black budget projects would be the perfect avenue for the MJ-12 to conduct its business in the shadows. When you hear the legend of Roswell, it's synonymous with Area 51. But the government denied the existence of Area 51 for years. It wasn't until 2013 when a declassified CIA document confirmed that a section of Nevada was handed over in 1955 as a testing facility. You heard that right. Area 51 is located in Nevada, not New Mexico, and not by Roswell. We learn from the document titled The Central Intelligence Agency and Overhead Reconnaissance that the CIA found the area to be ideal for the development and testing of secret spy planes to use in the Cold War. Adjacent from the area was Groom Lake, which had an incredibly long dry bed that could be transformed into a runway. The CIA would acquire Area 51 from the Department of Energy with Eisenhower signing off on it himself. This acquisition would ultimately cause, in my opinion, a conflict of interest, which will come to fruition later. You see, the CIA signed an agreement with the Air Force and the Navy 
in which the CIA assumed primary responsibility for all security on Area 51. This is incredibly important. It means that any facilities built on Area 51 would ultimately be the responsibility of the CIA, giving them authority on who gained access to the site or received any information on its projects or operations. Why is this important? Well, because it means that the military would have zero control over the classified projects on Area 51. And that would also mean the president could and would be removed from the equation. As commander-in-chief, the president commands the U.S. military forces and can access military bases and information at his pleasure. With the CIA in control of Area 51, they could deny him access. More troubling than Area 51 is the very controversial and rumored existence of an even more highly classified second location called S-4. What we know of S-4 comes from alleged whistleblowers. This facility is said to contain unacknowledged special access programs, SAPs. The Pentagon describes these programs this way, quote, Unacknowledged SAPs require a significantly greater degree of protection than acknowledged SAPs. A SAP with protective controls that ensures the existence of the program is not acknowledged, affirmed, or made to any person not authorized for such information. All aspects, technical, operational, logistical, are handled in an unacknowledged manner. End quote. Think about the implications of this. We know there are black-budget projects called unacknowledged SAPs. We know they receive billions of dollars every year, an estimated $53 billion, and probably more. And they have little to no congressional oversight. So who decides who's in the need to know? It's not Congress. It's not even the president. It's not any elected leader. I find that terrifying. If it wasn't for whistleblowers we may never have known about some of these unacknowledged saps. Regarding S-4, the most famous whistleblower has to be Bob Lazar. In 1989, he went public with his alleged experiences at the facility. According to Lazar, S-4 was housing nine different flying craft with advanced propulsion and navigation technologies that were not developed on this earth. Lazar's job was to help reverse engineer those technologies. Another extraordinary claim by Lazar is that these craft use element 115. 115 was a nomenclature used to express the number of protons found in the nucleus of every atom of that element. Lazar claims that this was the fuel that the craft used. At the time of Lazar's claim, no element with the atomic number of 115 existed. It wasn't until 2003 that scientists announced that a stable element of 115 was synthesized. It was later added to the periodic table and named Moscovium. Lazar was criticized for years because of his claim, and the word is still out whether Lazar's testimony is credible or if he is just plain lucky for his prediction. Here are a few other alleged whistleblowers and a few of their claims. Derek Hennessy, a former Navy SEAL recruited to work on the assassination of individuals deemed by the Majestic Twelve to be a national security threat. Steve Wilson, retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel who claims to have been involved with a program called Project Pounce. 
a supposed program that was aimed at locating, securing, and retrieving downed UFOs. Dan Burrish. He claims to have a PhD in microbiology and to have been recruited by MJ-12 in 1986. He takes the prize for the craziest out of all the claims. While at S-4, he alleges to have directly worked and communicated with an extraterrestrial named J-Rod. He also claims to have worked on two other projects. Project Lotus, a top-secret project focusing on the generation of life, and Project Looking Glass, which developed a device that could be used to bend space and time, allowing one to look into the future. On auroraborisinc.com, you can find more documents about S4, and especially the claims by Dan Burrish. We may never know whether these claims are true, and we may never actually discover what is going on at Area 51 or S4. That's because there's never been an official congressional investigation into either one of those places. And if the Majestic 12 have their way, there never will. Now that President Eisenhower had allowed the Majestic 12 more autonomy and an avenue to suppress information regarding UFOs and the technology that was being developed, he would come to regret this decision very quickly. In 2013, a retired CIA agent dying from acute kidney disease came forward to give his testimony on what he knew of the tension and the battle that occurred between Eisenhower and the Majestic 12. The agent revealed in video testimony before six retired members of the U.S. Congress that President Eisenhower quickly grew frustrated over his lack of knowledge and the lack of any response over what was happening at S-4. Eisenhower sought information on the alien-related projects and the MJ-12 continually denied any and all requests. The agent and his direct supervisor were summoned by Eisenhower and sent to S-4 to deliver a message. According to the agent, this is the message Eisenhower wanted delivered. Quote, We called the people in from MJ-12, from Area 51, and S-4, but they told us that the government had no jurisdiction over what they were doing. I want you and your boss to fly out there. I want you to give them a personal message. I want you to tell them, whoever is in charge, I want you to tell them that they have this coming week to get into Washington and to report to me. And if they don't, I'm going to get the first army from Colorado. We're going to go over there and take the base over. I don't care what kind of classified material you got. We're going to rip this thing apart. End quote. Upon delivering that threat, the agent claims to have witnessed several garage-type doors with flying saucers behind them, and even claims to have seen a gray alien. Back in Washington, the agent relayed back to Eisenhower and the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, all that he had witnessed. This, of course, shocked the men. It showed that the most secretive information concerning extraterrestrial life and technology was no longer under direct presidential oversight, as it had been during the Truman administration. The decision to give control over the security for Area 51 facilities to the CIA rather than to one of the military services, had quickly turned into a tragic mistake by Eisenhower. The decision, along with the reorganization of government recommended by Rockefeller, had given MJ-12 the means to create its own state within a state. After the 1960 presidential election, Eisenhower felt compelled to share his concerns in a general way with his farewell speech to the nation. 
It would be what he shared privately, however, with President-elect Kennedy, which would have the most dramatic effect on American history. Next time on Conspiracy. The stage has now been set. It's time to dive into the Kennedy presidency. Eisenhower gives warning, and Kennedy begins to make enemies. Deadly enemies. This is an Aurora Boris Inc. production.